Matt and, and Tiffany and their daughter Mira, who's like a year old or how old? One year old. So they are planting a church in the Smyrna area called Waterstone Church. And they just moved down here from, from Knoxville. They're actually from Atlanta. They lived here in Atlanta. Uh, they were on staff with crew. They've actually discipled some of the people in our congregation already as part of crew. So they're really a part of our extended family. And we're excited about Matt. He's going to bring the word to us today. And Tiffany is not in the room. She's back with, she's back here somewhere. Oh, there you are. Stand up, Tiffany. Stand up. Everybody say hey to Tiffany. Sorry, I didn't see you back there. Um, yeah, so, so Matt's going to bring the word, and I want to encourage you. So we are very, we're a very kingdom-oriented church, um, probably to a fault of we believe that God's is, you know, that Jesus is building his church all around the capital C church. We're a local part of that. And I would say if you are in the Smyrna area or you know some people who are in the Smyrna area and you call Dunwoody Community Church your church home, we will commission you, um, not because we want to get rid of you, but because we believe in the expansion of the church, and we want to see the church grow all around the city. So uh, if you have a heart for being part of a church plant, talk to Matt after the service, and he'd love to tell you a little bit more about his church. But uh, we're really excited to have Matt with us, and I'm going to ask Terrell, since you're up here, to go ahead and pray for him, and then uh, we'll get on. Let's pray. Father God, this is your morning. You created it. You placed us in it. And uh, Lord, again, you woke us up with air to breathe, uh, with, a, and with a place to go here on this Sunday with our DCC family. So we thank you for the, for the fellowship. We thank you for hearts that are, that are um, united in you, minds that want to hear from you. So with that this morning, Lord, we pray for Matt. Um, Lord, as you allow him to speak the word which you placed on his heart um, be, before this time in this past week, Lord, I just pray you give him freedom this morning. Let him feel your Holy Spirit in his heart, in his mind. Free him up to speak the word that you'd have him speak. Guide his words today, because we know we're hearing from you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. And yes, as has been said, my name is Matt Cohn. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, a little bit about me before we launch into the text, but if you do kind of want to, in this brief, probably about a five-minute who am I, who are we, who is Waterstone, uh, section, if you want to turn to the passage that we're going to be diving into later on in the morning, it's Second Kings chapter 4. So you can go ahead and prepare for that, so that once we get to that point, we just are able to launch right into it. But, so, who am I, who are we? Uh, as I said, my wife, Tiffany, and I, we've been married for just over eight years now, and we have a one-year-old daughter named Mira. And I grew up actually in Johns Creek. It wasn't even named Johns Creek at the time when I was out there. If you can believe it, if you're familiar with 141, by the time it hit Old Alabama, past, 140, or past Old Alabama, it was a dirt road when I moved out there. And so that's maybe a little bit about how old I am, but also just about my history here. I went to Chattahoochee High School. Uh, I also went to the University of Georgia. <laughs> Go dogs. I came to know the Lord while I was attending Perimeter Church, again, just up the road, and that happened in my early 20s. And so now, about 20 years or so later, the Lord has called me, has called my family as well to plant a new church in Smyrna. Now, we chose Smyrna because we actually lived there for 20 years, from about 2010 until 2020, when in the midst of the pandemic, we decided, hey, let's, let's try an adventure and let's go out west. 
And then that ended up never materializing, and so we came back to the southeast. And our denomination that I serve with essentially said, hey, you can go wherever you want. And over the course of our uh, exploration of places that we could go, we just kept coming back to Smyrna and all of our friendships and all of our relationships here. We also know that Smyrna is growing, especially the Smyrna-Cumberland area, because of, probably primarily because of the Brave Stadium, but even prior to that, uh, it was growing to begin with as well, and anticipate that maybe over the next 10 years or so, uh, just as Sandy Springs and Perimeter and Dunwoody have become what's known uh, as like ex-urban, so it's kind of like a continuation of downtown, midtown, Buckhead, now Sandy Springs, we see that Smyrna is actually on the trajectory as well, Smyrna-Cumberland too. It's already started. You can already see a couple places in there, uh, and so the expectation is that it continues to grow. You know, if you think about a clock, right, and you have the Brave Stadium uh, at the center of the clock, and then you have noon or 12 o'clock around until 9 o'clock, and I confess I don't know if I'm doing that the right direction for you guys. Maybe it's this way. But you get what I'm saying. So if you, that 9 o'clock window essentially is all really affluent, established homes and neighborhoods. Nothing's ever going to get torn down and built there. That nine to noon window, though, that is Smyrna. And that is where there's a ton of potential and a ton of opportunity for new stuff to come into and new stuff to grow. And so, again, with all the growth that is already coming, Smyrna is growing at twice the national average already. And with all the growth that's coming, there is a need for more healthy gospel-preaching churches. In fact, as we explored Smyrna and whether or not they needed, I guess you could say, one new church plant, We decided, no, actually Smyrna doesn't need one new church plant. They need 10 to 12 new church plants. Typically, folks say that for every 1,000 new residents, you need a new church. And Smyrna, again, at growing twice the national average, is going to need a new church about every single year over the course of the next decade. We are also excited to be here this morning, or perhaps me in particular, because DCC, uh, this is probably my first time meeting the majority of you, but DCC has been a very integral part of my life and my journey, especially over the last 10 years. You know, I had the honor of being discipled for a couple of years by an old friend of yours uh, by the name of Mark Elliott. And so for those of you who were a part of DCC back in the early 2000s and then uh, up until about 2013 or so, you're going to know Mark. And then while my wife and I were on staff with crew and working in college ministry, we had the privilege, certainly, of getting to know Becca Eldon and then Chris as well. And I would love to be able to take credit for, or I know my wife would love to be able to take credit for all the ways that Becca serves you guys so exceptionally well. We know she does a phenomenal job, but one of the things that I learned from my wife was just that in discipleship, you as the discipler oftentimes learn more than the disciple, the person you're discipling, right? And so really, Becca has taught Tiffany even more than Tiffany has ever taught Becca, and so uh, we can't take any credit for that. And then, of course, as well, uh, serving at both Georgia Tech and Kennesaw State have gotten to know and been really blessed by the opportunity to connect with uh, Grant and then his wife, Sophia, as well. And so um, DCC has been a very integral part for us. And then, of course, as we've been exploring, coming back to Smyrna, Tim and Jeff, they've been an invaluable source of kindness for us and encouragement. And in many ways, they have modeled what the humility and vision that we hope to be true of Waterstone Church Uh, I'm not going to say stories from here and things that have been said to me that would reflect the vision uh, and humility that they have, but 
I'm happy to do so if you ever want to grab coffee or something like that. It's really, um, it's beautiful. As a church planner, we'll just say it's beautiful. And to me, it reflects a really healthy culture and a really healthy church. So I'm excited to be here for that too. Now, uh, you may ask or be curious, like, where is Waterstone Church in the process of planting and the process of launching? Uh, that is probably the most common question that we get right now. Uh, you know, are you worshiping yet? If not, when do you plan to start worship? Because for a lot of people, they think that you're not a real church unless you're actually worshiping. Well, we don't have a timeline. A lot of people want a timeline. They want to know, hey, by Labor Day of 2024, you're going to be launching public worship. Well, we don't have a timeline because instead of a timeline, we are relying on the Lord to provide for us and help us to discern four to five key launch indicators that we're going to constantly be evaluating to determine when we, as a core group, are actually ready to publicly launch the church. And so really briefly, this gives you a little bit of vision too about who we hope Waterstone Church becomes. Those launch indicators spell the word MEND, M-E-N-D. And so M in MEND, as far as a launch indicator goes, stands for Michaels and Michelles. And these are two different people. Uh, Michael is an actual person. Michelle, she's a person too, but I don't actually know her name just because of the way that I got connected to her. Uh, But there are two groups of people that exist and live in Smyrna that I, having gotten to know them in the way that I did, I know that there's not a church there for them right now. They're not going to church, and I, I would question whether or not a church is there that would receive them and accept them. And so it seems like there's a bit of a, a standoffishness there towards the Michaels and Michelles. And I want our church to at least have a heart for and see the Michaels and Michelles that live in Smyrna. The E in men stands for equity of voice. We're praying for 30 people, uh, 10 married couples, 10 families, and then also 10 singles. We know that we're only ever going to be a church that is actually reaching singles or reaching families if, if those communities of people are part of our core team from the actual very beginning. So equity of voice. The N stands for non-Christians. And so for us, we prize and value having non-Christians who are actively involved in our lives and then also non-Christians who actually want to see this church come to fruition and want to actually be a part of the church coming to fruition too. As in like, hey, we want to come on Sunday mornings and we want to set up chairs for you guys. Or, hey, you know, I know I don't know this Jesus guy, but I really love what you guys are doing. I, I love the way that you have a heart for Smyrna. Can I work on your website for you? Can I manage your social media? Stuff like that. Uh, and so non-Christians, those are roles that they certainly can play in, and, and that is going to be an indicator for us. Until that happens, we're not going to launch public worship. And then the last thing, the D, is discipleship. We're going to have and ensure that every single person in our church is involved in being discipled and then also discipling somebody else. And so those are things that you can be praying for for us that actually happen. Again, I'm happy to share more about that or any of the other things with regards to uh, what I've just shared another time. You know, certainly, as, as Tim said, if you'd be interested in grabbing coffee or lunch sometime, then we could do that. Also, just a quick prayer request. This upcoming Wednesday night from 6.30 to 7.30, we're going to be starting prayer gatherings at our house just to get to know some of our neighbors and then also... Um, trust the Lord for planting the seeds or revealing the seeds to us that he's already planted that he's prepared for us to harvest. So we would certainly appreciate your prayers for our prayer gatherings. Wednesday nights, that's every single Wednesday night from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. 
All right. Well, thank you for allowing me to share a little bit. I would say, or I will say that that is enough about us right now. You did not come this morning just to hear about Waterstone Church. You came in order to hear from the Lord. So I would love to transition to today's text. And again, as I said before, that is 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses, well, initially we're going to be reading verses 8 through 20. And then if you stay in 2 Kings 4, we're eventually going to read verses 27 through 36 as well. But beginning, 2 Kings 4, chapter 8. I hear those pages rustling. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and he rested there and he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, he said to Gehazi, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. Essentially, no thanks, that's okay. And he said, well, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi, his servant, again answered, well, she has no son, and her husband, though wealthy, is old. And Elisha said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Now when the child had grown, he he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon. And then he died. This is the word of the Lord. So for the sake of time, we are just going to jump right in. And this morning we are digging into 2 Kings 4 and we're looking at Elisha and the Holy Spirit. And in particular, their presence and their power. And so for those of you who like sermon points or who take notes as you listen to the sermons, the two points this morning are the presence of God's Spirit and the power of God's Spirit. So first, the presence of God's Spirit. And it has to be said, if you were to actually read all of 2 Kings chapter 4, that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned once in this entire chapter. The Spirit is mentioned a whole bunch all throughout Kings, but for some reason, he's not mentioned once here. So how can we talk about the presence of God's Spirit when his Spirit isn't even mentioned once? Well, in chapter 2, so just two chapters earlier to this, Elisha asked to be Elijah's successor. You may be a little bit more familiar with Elijah just because he's mentioned so many times in the New Testament. And Elisha asked to be Elijah's successor, and then he also asks Elijah for a double portion of his spirit. And it appeared in 2 Kings chapter 2 like God actually answered his request. But as life progresses, as the narrative progresses, the question undoubtedly remains in the people's minds. Has Elisha actually succeeded Elijah? And in that era, the only way that you really knew that a prophet was the legitimate successor was primarily through if they could actually do the same things as their predecessor. So 
In 2 Kings 4, the chapter that we have here, again, if you were to read the whole thing, Elisha performs five miracles. And I'm sure he did many more, and he did other miracles as well. But our author here is extremely selective just to choose particular miracles because he's making it abundantly clear through these miracles that Elisha is, in fact, the legitimate successor to Elijah. Two of the miracles, in fact, are actually duplicates of miracles that Elijah performed in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 when he multiplied the widow's oil and when he raised the woman's son from the dead. Those are ex- almost... Um, Exactly the same here in 2 Kings chapter 4. So, okay, he's his successor. Now, it's one thing to be Elijah's successor, but it's another to receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit. That's kind of a big ask. So did he? Did he receive that double portion of Elijah's spirit? Well, you'd think that if he did, we would see Elisha do more miracles than Elijah, and also that his miracles would be a little bit more significant even than Elisha's miracles. Well, the next time that you read 2 Kings... Just pay attention to this, but you'll see that Elisha actually performs twice as many miracles as Elijah. And then here, even in chapter 4, we see that Elisha didn't just raise a woman's son from the dead, like Elijah had done in 1 Kings 17, but he actually blessed her with the ability to conceive a child in the first place. And so Elisha didn't just restore life, as Elijah had done as well, but God used him to help create life too. So Elisha has succeeded Elijah, and he does, in fact, have a double portion of Elijah's spirit, the Holy Spirit, on him. And so, yes, I think we can say that uh, the spirit is present, because the spirit is ultimately the one that is leading and guiding Elisha to be able to do all of these things. So, if that's the case, what do we learn about somebody who has the presence of God's spirit on them from today's text? Well, I'm certainly sure we could pull a whole lot of things. This is a big chapter. There's a lot of meat in this chapter. But the one thing that I really want to highlight is that somebody with God's spirit on him is non-anxious. Now we see this in 2 Kings 4 when everybody who approaches Elisha approaches him with some level of really intense emotion. In verse 1, the widow, which we didn't read, but the widow cries to Elisha. In verse 8, the Shunammite urged him to eat some food. And then in verse 27, which we're going to get to in just a little bit, she actually caught hold of Elisha's feet, and she wouldn't let him go. And her, her expression of emotion there was so incredibly dramatic, and in some respects inappropriate, that Elisha's servant Gehazi came up to her, and he tried to pull her off of him. And then in verse 40, a little bit later in the chapter again, which we're not going to read, he's dealing with the sons of the prophets, which were kind of, which were kind of folks that were following Elisha at that time. And these sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha about this deadly stew. And then they finally, in verse 43, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, the one who has seen him do the majority of these things, expressed doubt. And he almost mocked Elisha when Elisha commanded him to feed the men with 20 loaves of bread. So there's a lot of anxiety going on in this particular text. And everybody's basically bringing their anxiety to Elisha. Now, Elisha's response in each of these situations is mainly here, um, practically speaking, it's to give really wise directives. And it's tempting to say, of course, that the Spirit blessed Elisha with wisdom. And I think that's true. He did bless him with wisdom. But beyond that, I also think the Spirit gave him what we would describe today, it's kind of a buzzword, especially within Christian circles today, as a non-anxious presence. Because anxiety cripples wisdom. You can't be wise when you're experiencing anxiety. And perhaps nowhere is this more evident than in his response to this Shunammite woman's dead son. So here we're going to turn 
to verse 27. And we're going to read verse 27 through verse 36. This is when the woman whose son had been laid on her lap and passed away, she essentially called for um, a donkey to be given to her so she could go to Mount Carmel to Elisha, the one that she thought could actually do something for her as far as raising her son. And this is when she just gets to him here in verse 27. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone for she's in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And Elisha said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So Elisha arose and he followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and he laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. And therefore he returned to meet him and he told him, the child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. And so he went in and he shut the door behind the two of them and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and he lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And then he got up again and he walked once back and forth in the house. And he went up stretching himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And then Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shudamite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. Well... If you were Elisha, how would you respond if somebody that you really cared about came to you with the Shunammite's level of intensity and begged and insisted that you raise her son from the dead? I imagine, I know this would be myself, surely that you would just think that she's joking about her belief that you can actually do something about this situation or that the child can't actually be dead. There must just be something going on where he's in a really deep sleep. But she does clearly think that he can do something because she does go to him and she even refuses to let, uh, to leave without him actually coming with her. And then when he does arrive, we see in verse 32 that yes, the child is in fact dead. He was so dead that it was obvious just by looking at him. And we can know this as well because the distance from Shunem to Mount Carmel, it was over 20 miles and it was across some really treacherous terrain. So even if she had gone as fast as she possibly could and he had come back as fast as he possibly could, he likely didn't arrive until the child had been dead and laying on this bed for at least three to four days. And so by this point, uh, I do imagine that the child's skin and lips had sunken in and paled. So I only say this for the point of emphasizing that he was dead, dead. Now, I may be taking some dramatic liberty here, but, you know, as I read this, I usually imagine this whole entire scene here of Elisha in the upper room with the dead boy uh, in complete silence. You know, I don't imagine that there's any children outside playing. If this was a movie, I'm not imagining there's any, like, dramatic music going on in the background. The only thing that matches the chill of the silence is the chill of the child's skin. 
The only sounds are Elisha's breathing, which occasionally includes really deep breaths. And the sounds of the chair and the floorboards cracking as he moves around the room. And the only voice is his muffled prayer. And it's muffled because he has a really thick beard, but it's also muffled because he's bowed his head down heavy in his palms while he prays. But the child is dead. Dead things can't do anything. They need the presence and power of something or someone else to resuscitate them. And in this case, the Spirit's presence in Elisha freed him to be a non-anxious presence in order to care for the child. And then the power of the Spirit working through him was actually the return of the child's presence. You know, so what do we do with this? What does this mean for us? You know, I do want to be very clear as we think about the Spirit and we think about anxiety that I am, if you tend to be a bit more of an anxious person, which, hello, that's me too, I am not telling you to trust harder in the Holy Spirit, and that will cure your anxiety. I'm not telling you that at all. I know, again, as somebody who struggles with anxiety, that the irony of anxiety is that being told not to be anxious only exacerbates your anxiety. No, one way to combat anxiety really is just to do what Elisha did when he entered into the upper room. Because I think the silence in the room reflected the silence in his mind. And rather than try to solve the problem himself, despite offering directives everywhere else in 2 Kings chapter 4, remember, every single time somebody came to him with a sense of urgency, he gave really wise directives. But here he doesn't do that. Here instead, he pauses to pray. And it's the only place in the entire chapter that he pauses to pray. Likewise, so then when you, when I feel anxious, really what it is from the Lord is it's an invitation to pause. It's an invitation to quiet our minds, just to focus on God and ultimately to talk to him. If that means that in that moment you kind of say, hang on a second, let me take care of something, and you kind of work through this, that's okay. To be fully present with God is the heart here because God is always fully present with you. And so as you turn to him to be fully present with him in the midst of your anxiety, you can trust, you can be assured that he is fully present with you. And when you are present to God, his power works. Power that is even miraculously capable of calming your anxiety. And with that, we'll turn to our second point, which is the power of the Spirit. Now, one consistent theme in how the Spirit demonstrated its power in 2 Kings 4 is the word abundance. And, and no, the word abundance is not used in the chapter, but just as I reflected upon um, the ways that the Spirit blessed the people through Elisha, just abundance just kept screaming out at me. Now, abundance can mean a lot of different things. And the two most common, especially within the biblical text, is that it refers either to quantity or quality. So with quantity, it refers to more than is necessary. And then with quality, it refers to superior to or surpassing. So I want to make sure that we're all on the same page with the differences between quantity of abundance and quality of abundance. So we're going to have a couple examples, and hopefully we have a little bit of fun with this. And you can tell me if you agree with these examples or not. But the first one I would say is a pretty obvious one. If there's anybody who doesn't agree with it, I'm not sure you're a Christian. But I would say that... I'm kidding, I'm totally kidding, that there is an abundance of cars in Atlanta. 
I would say that there are more cars in Atlanta than are necessary. I would also say the cost of living in Atlanta continues to rise abundantly or far more than is necessary. This summer, I would say that uh, we have experienced an abundantly hot summer, hotter than is necessary. And I would also say that as a result of that, our power bills, I don't know about you guys, but our power bills have been abundantly high. Again, higher than is necessary. Can I get an amen? Okay, here we go. We are are on the same page with quantity. Love it. Well, how about abundant quality or surpassing to or superior to quality? Now, this first one is easy too. Again, if you disagree with me, that just means you're not a Christian. Atlanta is home to an abundant restaurant, Chick-fil-A. Or Atlanta is home to a quality restaurant or a superior restaurant, Atlanta is also home to abundant diversity. And I guess really with regards to the diversity in Atlanta, you can use abundance in a couple of different ways, right? Quantity and quality. But really just to share from our hearts, the um, people of Atlanta and their surpassing or superior quality are really the reason that we actually came back. The ethnic, economic, and cultural diversity of Atlanta are an abundant characteristic of the city, or it's a characteristic that makes Atlanta superior to or surpassing to other cities that we know and that we've since lived in and visited. Okay, so do we get it now? Do we kind of see the difference between quality or quantity and then quality as well with regards to the use of the word abundance? So if so, how do we see the Spirit's power produce abundance in quantity and quality in 2 Kings chapter 4? Well, in the first few verses, again, we didn't read this. You kind of have to trust me. And again, I would encourage you to go and read the whole chapter later. But in the first few verses, Elisha did not just give the widow whose creditors were coming for her children enough oil to pay off her debts. He actually gave her enough to live off of as well. So he gave her an abundance of oil, a high quantity of oil. And by giving her an abundance of oil, this, of course, allowed for her and her sons to live an abundantly better, surpassing or superior to life than they would have if she had had to lend her sons to the creditor to pay off her debts. While the wealthy Shunammite, who we did read about, didn't need money, she had an abundance of money, she didn't have an heir to receive her husband's wealth after he died. So Elisha provided a son, and through that relationship provided an, uh, a superior life for her, certainly one that was better than if she was all of a sudden destitute when her husband had died. And then, of course, toward the end of the chapter, again, as we're thinking about or looking towards Elisha and his relationship with the sons of the prophets, Elisha provided an abundance of stew by healing it of its poison and an abundance of bread by multiplying the loaves. And so in the midst of this great famine, both of these actions provided an abundantly better experience or life for the sons of the prophets. So that's 2 Kings 4. How about our lives? In terms of quantity, I think some of us could say that we have an abundance of money. Or, you know, realistically speaking, we have more money than is necessary. But I also know that there's others of us in here that are just barely scraping by. And I would wonder if those who do have an abundance of money in terms of quantity would say that their money has provided them an abundantly better or more enriching life. You know, as the prophet Biggie Small said in 1997, mo money, mo problems. How about relationships? How many of you feel like you have an abundance of relationships? Or maybe you do have an abundant quantity of relationships, but how many of those relationships offer you an abundant quality of life? 
You know, some of the most lonely people I know have hundreds of acquaintances, but they have zero very close friends. How about time? Well, time is an interesting one. We're starting to hit a little closer to home here too, aren't we? Time is interesting because it's the one thing that everyone around the world has the same quantity of each day. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how old you are. A day is 24 hours. We all have the same amount of time. So nobody has an abundant amount of time or more time than is necessary because we all have the same exact amount of time and the exact amount of time that we need. But the quality of our time, that varies widely from culture to culture and from person to person. In fact, I probably, in fact, I don't. I don't have to ask you the question. I already know that most of us don't feel like our time is rich and abundant. And I'm even going to take it a bit of a step further and say that sometimes it feels like Atlanta isn't the city too busy to hate. One of the catchphrases for the city, city too busy to hate. Atlanta is not a city too busy to hate. Atlanta sometimes feels like it's a city too busy to care. And that is part of why we're going to emphasize a more local church model. Because time has less power over your life when you are geographically close. I know a lot of people out there want, they want quality time. That's what they really crave. It's one of the love languages, right? What's the best way to get quality time? It's to spend quantity time with people. To spend quantity time with people, you have to be geographically close. You have to prioritize that. So, uh, unfortunately, whether it's money, whether it's relationships, or whether it is time, I I, I hate to break it to you. I hate to break it to myself. I hate to have to say something like this, but you're never going to have enough quantity or quality, and what you do have will never be enough. Just like in our text, eventually the widow's oil did run out, and and she and her sons actually had to work. Eventually the pot of stew and the bread ran out, and the sons of the prophets got hungry again. And tragically, the Shunammite son eventually did die again. And just as we all will as well, you will never have enough. And what you do have will never be enough. Unless, unless, as Jesus says in John 10, you are in Christ. Jesus says that he came that his people may have life and have it abundantly. Friends, in Christ, you don't just have enough you will have far more than is necessary. And what you have won't just be enough, it is superior to, or it surpasses everything else. Look at relationships, okay? Let's kind of go back through these things. For quantity, you know, a relationship with Jesus is a relationship with a man who put the stars where they are, and he essentially said to the moon, hey, this is where you have to be in order to continue to maintain your orbit. It may just be one relationship, but how vast are the riches and the potential of that one relationship? And it's actually not just one relationship because that one relationship means that you have things in common with billions of people across the world. So an abundant quantity of relationships in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Well, how about abundant quality as far as relationships with Jesus? You know, friends, Jesus is the only person who can truly, truly satisfy the deepest longings and desires of your heart and offer freedom without cost because he is the one who paid the price for your freedom. In Christ, you are already, right now, today, seated in the heavenlies. And with Christ, you are never going to be alone. There is no more quality relationship that you will ever have than a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, how about time? Well, Jesus offers us uh, something called eternal life. You can't get more of anything than infinity. 
And he says that in this eternal life, there's not going to be any pain or any tears. No pain, no sadness. That sounds amazing. It sounds like a superior life to the one that we're living now, and it is. It's superior, it's abundant in both quantity and time and quality in the superior to or surpassing aspect of the life that we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. But this, this, friends, is the kicker, and it's the thing that we often miss this side of heaven. But really, it is the key to unlocking the Christian life. This is not new to me, okay? John says in 1 John 5, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I, John, write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, whoever has the Son has life. That is present tense. And he also says, I write to you that you may know that you have present tense eternal life. He doesn't say that you will have life or that you may know that you will have life. He says you already have it. This eternal life, which is abundant in quantity and quality, it actually begins when your relationship with Jesus begins. How? Through the presence and power of the same spirit that rested on Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2 and 4 and, and proceeding from there. But here's another beautiful truth, though. The, the truths and the beautiful truths don't just stop here. It's something that distinguishes you from Elisha. See, the biblical language is clear to say that the Spirit rested on Elisha. That's how Elisha asks for it from Elijah when he says, I want a double portion of your Spirit. I want a double portion of your Spirit to rest on me in 2 Kings chapter 2. And that's then how the sons of the prophets actually describe the Spirit resting on Elisha a little bit later in 2 Kings chapter 2. And look at the power of the Spirit when it rests on somebody. But when we get to the New Testament, there is a world of difference when you just change one letter. Rather than the Spirit resting on us, the Spirit now rests in us. Look at Acts 2, 1 through 4, when the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Does that sound familiar? But now we have the turning point. We have an evolution of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit as Acts 2 continues, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see the same reality of in, not on, conveyed in 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 8, and other places throughout the New Testament as well. Friends, this presence and power of the same Spirit that we see at work in Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4 is the same Spirit who raised the Shunammite son from the dead and gave him back his life, is the same Spirit who now dwells inside of you and offers you an abundant life of abundance. Do you see what I did there? And he offers that to you today. Now let us pray and let us ask the Lord to help us to believe that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing it and passing it down. Thank you that um, we have it now to nourish our hearts and our souls. And Father, we pray that the truths of this scripture here would dwell deeply inside of us and root themselves in such a way that nothing would ever be able to tear them out. 
Father, help us together as a community here at DCC to be able to continue to point one another to these truths as well. And Lord, may you bless this church and bless these people and their outreach and their presence here in the Dunwoody community as you have already very evidently continued to do. Thank you again. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.